Welcome to TopCast. TopCast is the This Old Pinball podcast for all things related to pinball. Our emphasis is on interviewing pinball personalities, particularly those that work in the coin-operated game industry. To find TopCast on the Internet, just point your browser to pinrepair.com slash TopCast, and you will find all of our shows, which are available in podcast format for download. Our podcasts are also available through Apple's iTunes, if you're using an iPod-type MP3 device. Tonight on TopCast, we'll be talking with Pat Lawler of Williams, Bally, and Stern. He is a game designer that started working in the video game industry and later became a pinball designer at Williams. Pat designed some amazing pinball machines, starting with Bonsai Run in 1988 and, of course, The Adams Family in 1992, which sold more games than any other model. Pat Lawler was one of the co-designers of the Pinball 2000 system. So now we're going to be talking with Pat Lawler in part one of our interview. Pat, thanks for coming on TopCast with us tonight. So let's start at the beginning. You know, what was your first memories of pinball? How did you get involved with it? I mean, did you play pinball when you were a kid? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Okay, now, where, um, do you remember the games you played or where you played? Yeah. Uh, there's a story that I I tell everybody, which is, you know, I used to, on Saturday mornings, uh, my dad, who was a salesman for uh, for Schlitz, I used to hop on his beer truck, and uh, I got to ride with him on Saturdays. And so while he was doing business, I was sitting in, in, you know, I was hanging out in the bars with him, and I was allowed to play the games. They'd give me dimes, and I'd sit there and play pinball machines. Were these, um, were these like Wedgehead-type games or Williams games? Do you remember any titles? They No, I don't remember any titles. The, the first titles I remember were some of the games that I played in college. Um and uh, in fact we we played so much pinball i had a pinball machine that i bought in college and i had sitting in my uh when i when i lived off campus my my senior year i had a, a game sitting in my kitchen that we all sat there and played which was a flipper cowboy okay now um where did you go to school and what did you major in uh, i went to school in minnesota at a place called uh, st mary's college and I majored in communication arts. And where did you grow up? You know, when um, when you were doing the the Schlitz uh, beer truck runs, where where was that? Uh, it was a suburb of, of uh, Chicago. It was one of the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Uh, what was your degree in? Communication arts, theater, and radio, and all kinds of good stuff like that. And when you got out of college, did you uh, did you work in that in that area? Uh, that's actually a pretty interesting thing. Uh, I got out of school, and uh, one of the first jobs I had out of college was I went into radio, and I did the disc jockey thing, and I got tired of not uh, the, the the station that I worked for. The the, uh, the the checks weren't always good on Friday, so I got kind of tired of that gig, and I ended up uh, being a a manager in a, in a large uh, auto center. Uh, I was a manager in the in the shop. Um, you know, making uh, it was a it was a big big auto center. We had 24 bays, and I would sit there. And when people came in to get their cars fixed, I you know I sell them stuff. I was basically a service manager. 
Now, when you were doing the radio station gig, what was the format, and how long did you do that for? Uh, I did it for something like eight months. The, the format was early, uh, early to mid seventies, uh, late night FM, and so you know, a lot of lot of lot of Grateful Dead and uh, <laughs> all kinds of uh, fun stuff that you play on late late night FM. Hmm. It actually sounds like a pretty fun job for something right out of school. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was. It was. It, there was nothing wrong with the with the job, other than uh, the the checks weren't any good. <laughs> um, and I probably had the checks been good, I probably would have stuck with that instead of going to work. Uh, going to work doing the other thing, but but doing the other thing, the money was was so good that it was it was pretty hard to turn down. Now, how long did you do the service manager gig for? Seven years. Seven. And now, what got you out of that? Uh, what got me out of that was uh, absolute and complete burnout of dealing with the American public. Uh, it was a, it was an incredibly, it's an incredibly stressful job if you if you have anything to do with dealing with customers all day long, and then multiply that by the fact that your job is working on their cars, and you know the, the American public is pretty certain that everybody that touches their car is a crook. So it's 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 a you know it's a tough environment to 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 work in but but it's a great it was a it was for me a great foundation in in a in a bunch of different things uh, one of which was dealing with other people and uh, one of which was learning how different you know that all the different people who worked for me because I was the manager had different uh, different strong points and that. You know that that'll you know that came back to play a lot later when I was in the game business. Now, during this time, were you uh, while you were doing the service manager gig, were you playing pinball or thinking about pinball, or was it just not even in your mind at this point? Yeah, we um, we would go out on like everybody else back then. We'd go out and hang out in the bars, and whatever games were there, we'd play. And throughout the seventies. I would sit there and I would play. Uh, I would play pinball wherever we went. The rest of the group would be standing there drinking, having a good time, and I'd be in a corner playing pinball somewhere. Uh, and then near the end of that time uh, was when video, uh, you know, the, the big run-up in video happened, which was in 1980. And uh, and so I was like everybody else. I was I was happily sitting there playing Space Invaders and and Pac-Man. Now, what happened to the flipper, uh, the flipper cowboy from college? <laughs> it's it's like a it's like a Blues Brothers joke. Uh, when I got out of college, I badly needed some uh, some stereo stuff, and so I traded my flipper cowboy to a guy uh, who actually at the time was working for Sony, and uh, I got some I got some stuff out of him for the for the game. <laughs> okay, so now. Seven years pass as the service manager, and you're you're burned out from that gig. Now, now, where do you go? Uh, basically, I I went into hiding for three months, and I refused to do anything. Uh, I was terribly burned out, and uh, I got up one morning and uh, I said, you know, it, it sure would be better be good if I got a job. And so I looked in the paper, and there was an ad in the paper for. Um, for computer programmers, when I'd been in college, one of the things that was sort of a secondary pursuit at the time was I had taken 
I, I had taken computer programming, and I had taken it back when you uh, you had you know big decks of cards that you punched, and you would go and you would learn how to program in Fortran on machines that took up a whole room. And so I saw an ad in the paper for somebody. They were looking for somebody who could program uh, in a you know in a business environment on one of these machines. And so I said, well, that looks like a pretty good, interesting way. Maybe you know, maybe they'll hire me. So I I called. I got an interview, and they uh, they they said you you can program on this 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 you know this old machine we've got. And I said, of course. And they said, okay, you're hired. Uh, and I went to work there, and I lasted there for about a year. And this was this was in seventy nine eighty. And uh, I kept getting calls every day from headhunters, and the headhunters were basically trying to move you into different jobs so they could make a bundle of cash on their end. But they, there, there was a huge need at that time. There was a huge growth going on in, in computer programming. And finally, I got mad at one of these guys, and I said, "Don't, don't even, you know, don't bother to call me anymore unless you can get me a job in video games." Because I'd been out on, you know, I'd been out every night playing playing uh, Pac-Man. I'd been out playing all these great games, and I said, "It sure would be neat if I could do that." And uh, at the time, I also had it, one of the early Apple IIs. And I was sitting there programming on that at home. And so the guy grumbled a little and he hung up. And a month later he called me back and said, I've got you an interview at a video game, uh, a group that's associated with Bally uh, named Dave Nutting Associates. And I went and interviewed with them. And after three interviews, I got a job there. Now, when you were messing around on the Apple, were you just doing basic or were you doing 6502 at that point? Both. And were you any good at it? Uh, that's, an, that's, <laughs> that's, an, that's debatable. Um, I was good enough that I was able to show the people at Dave Nutting the stuff that I had done on the Apple, and uh, that was basically what got me the job. Now, were they um, at Nutting? Were they having a hard time filling positions with you know with this experience? Um, they were they were an interesting group. They uh, they had gone through the very very earliest part of the video run up at that point. Um, they had had a small shakeout internally. Uh, they were also the people uh, Dave Nutting. And his partner Dave Fredrickson were also the people that had done for Bally the Bally Arcade home system, and uh, so they were looking for people. They they were they had decided that programmers were one thing, but what they really wanted was creative people. Um, they they were sort of a forward-looking group. Uh, while everybody else in the world was desperately just trying to hire programmers, they believed that if they had creative people, they could create, you know, they could build things that were very sellable and, and made a lot of money. And, uh, they were also forward looking enough that they had tools that other people didn't have at that point. They had made tools where you didn't have to be necessarily the top-notch killer dog programmer in the world. They had sort of, sort of separated it to a, 
a mid mid range kind of language thing that they internally uh, in in a humorous sense called V'ger, um, and which allowed you to very quickly manipulate animation uh, on a you know on a TV screen, and this was 1981. And so, you know, that they were they were doing some pretty bleeding edge kind of stuff that wasn't necessarily, you know, just just uh, assembly programming. Um, and it was a really it was a really good environment to to jump into and get to do things. So basically, they had set up kind of a uh, kind of a flash, if you want to put it in today's terms, kind of like a flash environment that somebody could come in without a ton of animation experience, but had had a good creative touch. And make something happen. It was a, it, 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 that would be a crude approximation. I mean, you you still had to know, in a very real sense, how to program an assembler. You had to know how to program in the. Vijay was a form of fourth. If for anybody who's out there who would remember a language called fourth, which is an extensible language that you basically create on your own, building on top of other things that the language has that that are keywords. Um, and then they created an animation system with that. And so you could sit there and you could very quickly have objects running around and doing things. So, yeah, what, what you just described was actually a pretty, it would be a modern approximation of what they were up to. Um, and and in, a, in, a, in, a, in an amazing sense, uh, we programmed on, the, uh, on Z80s, uh, on 2 megahertz Z80s, which were pretty pretty powerful chips at that time. And we were able to get what we were doing running on those chips with this language base, which was pretty a pretty amazing accomplishment for 1981. So was the hardware you were using like uh, CPM machines, E80 CPM machines, or were they actually like dedicated video game hardware with, you know, some sort of, you know, programming interface? Completely dedicated. Everything that was done there was 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 built internally by Dave Nutting Associates and, de- and designed by them. Um, it was uh, it, it was one hundred percent designed to do video games, and then the company designed their own development systems uh, that sat next to it, and we'd sit there and because there were you know there was really no such thing as PCs yet. Uh, so you had to do your own development. So basically you had one box that was running the Z80, which had the development system on it, and then you had the game system, which was the target, which was the same exact system that you could download into. Hmm. Okay. Now, what was your first job there? I was a programmer. Yeah, no, I mean, what project? Um, I was I was sort of a guinea pig, which was was interesting. They gave me a couple of things to model and hack and do. Uh, one of them was a was a rather humorous uh, thing where where I I put a giant spider web on a screen and had a bunch of spiders running around on this spider web and your job was to get the hell off the spider web. Um, but that was just a that was just a programming exercise to see how fast that they could push the you know the language what they were doing. Uh, the first game that I worked on for them was a game called Demons and that ended up being called Demons and Dragons, uh, which uh, which was a, a, a basically a, you know what all games were back then. It was a 2D game 
there was a castle. There was a there was a fair maiden in the center of the castle, and there were a whole bunch of evil bad guys trying to burn the castle to the ground. Uh, and so I basically got that game done. Uh, we uh, we made samples of the game, um, and somewhere near the end of us making samples, the beginning of video collapse started happening. Uh, around 19, late 1982, 1983. Hmm. And, uh, and so I then was shifted to, they, they, the industry does what it does best. It went into retrenchment mode and, uh, the beginning of retrenchment mode. And they decided that they wanted a high tech shuffle alley. And I shifted onto a project which was a, a, a shuffle alley with a puck that was a video shuffle alley. And uh, it was called Ten Pin Deluxe. Yeah, that came out by Bally Midway, right? Except that we were, it was done by Dave Nutting, and, you know, we were part of their group, so we sold it to them. I'm oh. the one who programmed that. Oh, in its entirety, you were the project manager, so to speak? I'm it. Were you the only guy that was working on it? That's it. Well, there, there was actually, at, the, at that point, we actually had someone... Uh, Guy by the name of Scott Norris, who did uh, who did the music and sounds, because I didn't know a darn thing about doing music and sounds on a computer. Uh, but basically, I did the whole thing. Yeah. And how was the? Uh, um, I, I mean, did it did it earn well? Did you get commission, or were you just paid straight up, pretty much at this point? At Dave Nutting, everybody was paid was paid a, a very nice salary, and there were bonuses at the end of the year, depending on how the company did. Um, remember, you're still somewhere in 1982, uh, 83, and there were a tiny, tiny handful of people in the world who had broken through the ceiling of demanding that they get a piece of the action. Um, and those people are legendary. In that, <laughs> those are the people that you know that we all know their names. You, you weren't one of the, these people demanding such at the time. I, I would have been I, w- I would have been tossed out on my ear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now what happened after after the the ten pin Bally ten pin uh, sale? D- Dave Nutting Associates basically was the video collapse completely happened uh, in 1983, and for anybody who doesn't know what that means, it means that the industry went from from being this enormously uh, uh, m- this enormous money-making enterprise, I mean, there was just money being thrown at the video game companies. No one can imagine how much money there was to being nothing almost overnight. I mean, the the the, the industry basically completely collapsed on itself. And so Dave Nutting was was uh, was was shut down. It was closed, and we were all uh, we were all basically sent out of work. Now there was a person, there was a guy who at the time was one of the managers at Dave Nutting, and uh, his name was was Bob Ogden, and um, he had started a video game, a small video game company that had. Um, that that was doing home cartridges. They did cartridges for machines like Activision, uh, what was left of the Bally Arcade, 
uh, ColecoVision, uh, those kind of things. And I ended up going to work for him for a year. Um, and so I, I then transitioned into that gig. That gig completely collapsed a year later um, where there was no money. And uh, I ended up sort of tossing around doing odd work in programming uh, for various and sundry people. Uh, and finally, at that point, I ended up working with a person I had worked with at Dave Nutting uh, at, a ver- at, a, at a small company uh, on the west- western suburbs of Chicago called Nuvitech. And what I ended up doing was I was programming modern pin setters uh, for Brunswick. Uh, and if you can imagine a full-size shuffle alley, <laughs> you know, with a real bowling ball and pins, I was able to set individual pins with the pin setter. And so their dream was they were going to build games with these pin setters. And uh, they were they were building modern bowling centers, you know, that had microprocess- microprocessors in them and, you know, could do all kinds of fun things. And I ended up doing that for a year. And that's, we finally get to the point where we're almost a pinball. Now we get to the point where Pat talks about pinball in Pat's respect for Larry DeMar's work in Williams High Speed. I ended up doing that for a year, and there was a, a gentleman there who had worked for Williams Electronics, and his name was Paul DeSalt. And Paul knew Larry DeMar. And Paul got Larry to come in and see if he wanted to be a hired programmer working on parts of this Brunswick system. And when Larry showed up, I introduced myself to him because he was one of my heroes. And I said, you know, hey, you know, uh, this it's really cool to meet you because he had just gotten done with Steve Ritchie doing high speed. And uh, uh, I had gone, we had gone off every lunch. Uh, from there, and we were playing high speed on lunch every day. I mean, the whole world was playing high speed. And here I was getting to meet the guy who had programmed it. Yeah. And I said, you know, this is really cool. I've, you know, I worked in the game business. You know, I've got this crazy idea for a pinball machine that has a vertical component in its back glass. And he basically said, let's go build it. Wait, before we get too far into this, how did you know, I mean, did you know Larry because of, you know, Defender Stargate type fame, or did you know him just strictly from the high-speed stuff? All of that. How did you know it was Larry? Because it's, you know, you you have to dig to get a name at this point in time. People aren't putting their names on, well, I guess Stern was doing that a little bit, but people weren't, like, even putting designer names on play fields. Right, except that I had known... I had known of him and Eugene when they did, you know, uh, Stargate and Robotron, because at the time I'd been in the business. Um, I had never met them, but I knew who they were. I knew the names. And then when I went to work at Nuvitech, Paul DeSalt said, you know, Larry's the guy who did, who did uh, High Speed. And I said, "Oh, really? You know, oh, I know. I, you know, I, I've, I know. I know who Larry is. I've heard of him." Hmm. And so that's how I knew who he was. So when, 
Larry said, let's build this. At this point, you were not with Williams. You were basically going to just present this idea to them? Uh, well, actually, it was stranger than that. Uh, we basically went and we built a we built a complete. Larry said, "If we're going to do this, we're going to build a complete working model, and we're going to show it to them and sell it to them." And uh, which worked out okay because I have a complete wood shop here. <laughs> All right, back then I had a much smaller version of what I have now, but I was capable. I was completely capable of building things. Uh, and I said, okay, cool. You know, you 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 know how you know how to like make it make it go once I build it. And uh, he said, yeah. And I said, okay. So uh, so I we started out out here at, in the I live I live 65 miles northwest of Chicago, which is way out in the country compared. Larry at the time lived in the middle of the city. And and so uh, for the first part of the project, I'd be. Building, I'd be designing a play field and wiring it, and and I built the cabinet and I built the back box and I built the back play field, and he'd be he'd be coming out here every couple of days, and he'd be saying things like, I don't know, the jet pumpers don't look like they're in a good place, and I don't know about this, and then I'd tear the thing apart, and two days later I'd have it rebuilt, and he'd come back and go, oh, that's much cooler, you know, look at that, this is really fun, and uh, then when we got it to that point. We picked the whole thing up and basically we took it into the city where his, he had a studio apartment that was underneath his regular um, condo and we took it in there and then we worked on it until we showed it to Williams there. Now at this time it wasn't called Bonsai Run, it was what, Wrecking Ball or something? Is that what it was, Wrecking Ball? Wrecking Ball, right. Right, yeah, because I saw a picture of uh, a much different Larry in front of Wrecking Ball, and it was kind of interesting looking. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the it was kind of strange. You know, I, I, we were we we had this great concept. It was fun to 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 play with it. You know, nothing at that point was set in stone, other than this is a cool concept. You know, Williams. How about if you you know, we we got it to the point where we could demonstrate it, basically. Where we could demonstrate that the concept was a viable concept, but it wasn't really a playable game per se. It was playable. You, Larry went, you know, he programmed it to the point where you could stand there, you could press start, it played music, you'd flip at it, it would, you know, it would make make sound, it would play, it had rules in it. You could pick the ball would get picked up and take taken to the upper play field. You could flip it up there. Now, using, I, I imagine you're using like Williams System 11 hardware that Larry had gotten from work, right? Uh, actually, he didn't get it from work. Uh, what, what he did was uh, he went to a distributor, and uh, they had uh, they had a whole bunch of different games, and uh, he he picked up a, a pinball machine, brand new in the box. Uh, we brought it back and we completely stripped it. What, what was the game? Um, da, 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 da. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It was wait, uh, wait. Let me guess. Game Road Kings. It was Road Kings. Yeah. God, what? Road Kings, brand new in the box. I took all of the pinball components out of it and remounted them all in in Wrecking Ball, 
and then Larry took the boards out of it and made it all go. Now, you're building play fields in your home shop? Yes. So how are you handling inserts, or aren't you worrying about that stuff at this point? Um, well, the, the inserts, uh, I would sit there and I would hand cut the cutouts for the inserts. Um, at the time, I basically did it in a really, I mean, crude fashion. I would sit there and I'd mark around the insert with a pencil, and then I'd cut out the cut out the shape, and then I'd sit there and glue the insert into the wood. And I did that for the whole playfield. Now, inserts came from uh, 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 Larry. You know, knew, knew Steve Kordak, and he asked him very nicely, "Could we get a couple of handfuls of inserts?" And Steve Kordak said, "Sure, no problem. Here's some boxes of stuff." And did anybody at Williams, other than Larry and maybe Kordak, know what you guys were doing? Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, the the guy at the time who was head of engineering's name is Ken, was Ken Fidesna. And Ken also knew what we were up to. And everybody was okay? Sure that we were doing anything that was, you know, was going to be worth anything. But then again, Larry, Larry already had a reputation that preceded him. And so when Larry said... This is an interesting idea. I think you guys ought to pay attention. They were, you know, they said, okay, we think this is an interesting idea. We better pay attention. Yeah, Larry kind of had this reputation with the WizKiz thing where he would develop games on the side and then sell it to Williams. So is, is, this was just kind of an extension of that? Yes. And he was one of the few people that could actually get away with that, right? Yes. So that presented no problems, obviously for you because you weren't on the inside. But Williams was totally okay with this whole concept. Well, they 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 didn't they didn't know anything about the game yet. They didn't know what we were doing. They didn't know, you know, they we didn't tell them what you know what the concept was. We just you know we just explained oh you know we need a couple of inserts for something we're doing, and they they were fine. I mean, what's it going to cost them three dollars worth of plastic? And so it, it was, you know, and Larry was involved, so what, it's no big deal. You know, you, you know, somebody of, somebody of that caliber comes up to me right now and says, could I have $3 worth of plastic? I'm going to hand it to him. It, you know, it would make no sense to say no. Now, was Williams doing this with anybody else? I mean, were there any other designers or potential designers that were doing similar products on the side? No. Okay. No. This was a, this was a, you know, and, and I wasn't a pinball, you know, I wasn't known as a pinball designer then. I mean, Larry was taking it on faith that I was showing him, you know, that I could do this. And so, you know, I had been in the business, but had I ever done a pinball machine, the answer was no. What about the music? How did, did Larry just handle all the, all the music too? Yeah, he, he did all of that, and to be perfectly honest, I don't even remember what was in the game at that point. I don't remember what was in Wrecking Ball. And you don't have the original Wrecking Ball or any of the parts or any of the software? We gave, we, we basically, I basically gave Wrecking Ball uh, away um, to one of the, one of the collectors. Uh, the problem was at the time I didn't have my, I didn't have a lot of room in the house. I had a barn and it had been sitting in my barn for, for three or four years after we had gotten done with it and it was slowly being eaten away and I went, you know, one of the collectors I knew said, oh man, I'd love to have that and I said, fine, it's yours. Okay. So now, this was what, 
85, 86 when this was all going on? Yeah, it was, no, it was about 87. Okay, now, Bonsai Run didn't officially come out till mid-88, so was this, did it take a year to sell the idea to Williams? Mm, what happened was, we had a, we had a showing where Ken Fidesna, um, Ken Fidesna, Neil Nicastro, and Steve Ritchie were invited to come see what we had built. And they came and they played the game. And when they got all done, they, they said, thank you very much. We all, you know, sat around and had a drink. And they left. And at that point, Larry went into negotiations with them as to would you like to buy the concept and have us come and build a real one. And it took about six months after they saw the game, as I remember, it might have been a shorter time, but I think it was, it was like four months, something like that, after they saw it where they came to an agreement on a negotiation to do that. And then I went to work internally at Williams. I got an office there. And I sat down at a drawing board and proceeded to draw Bonsai Run. You know, Larry had an office across from me and he, as the model shop, built what I did, you know, what I did and, and then we, we acquired, uh, we, we, Williams gave us a, uh, um, a guy who at the time was brand new on the floor to be a mechanical engineer. He hadn't been a mechanical engineer up on the floor. He'd been in incoming inspection. His name was John Crutch. Um, and uh, so we, we, we went to work doing that. You went from a guy that was running a service department at an auto center to more or less this creative pinball guy in, in a in really a fairly short span, and and you really didn't have a, you know, I mean, you really didn't have a history of this creative thing, other than you know what you did in school and and a little bit of the of the DJ thing. It, it's kind of amazing that you you know you made this transition. Yeah, interestingly, I sort of spent my whole life growing up designing games and and. You know, being a game geek, um, which I suppose served me well later in life. Yeah, but you really didn't, really, I mean, what you told me earlier, I, I didn't get the game geek feeling from you at all. I mean, yeah, you played some pinball, you played some video games, but everybody was playing pinball and everybody was playing video games at this time. I mean, were you doing something differently than everybody else? I guess not. Yeah, because I mean, everybody was, you know, that time. I mean, this was all new. I mean, and you know, and like you said, 1980 when the video game thing came. I think, I mean, you got extremely lucky being, uh, you know, with that with the job with Nutting. But yeah, everybody was playing in that. So I mean, you really, you 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 had a little luck going with you, and then you combine that with your style to really kind of pull this all off, which is really interesting. I was sort of an, there was one other thing I did in there, which you know sort of gives you an idea where I was. Though it, 
1978, 79, when the very first uh, home, what they were called home computers, but they were just microcomputers, were available, I ran out and spent the ungodly sum of $600 to buy a machine called an Ohio Scientific, which was one of the, the, the they came out somewhere around the same time as an Apple II. They were 6502 based. Um, and uh, so I was sitting in my in my house at the time in the suburbs of Chicago programming on a machine, and people were looking at me going, are you crazy? Why did you spend all this money on this little computer? It's a complete waste of money. Um, but, it, but it gives you an idea of what I, you know, sort of what I was interested in. Now, in, in back in your earlier days, like in college or in high school, were you into sports at all or anything like that? What were your hobbies? No, I, no. My my hobbies were were always, uh, you know, building and, and you know, I, I was like the quintessential geek. I, I, you know, I had I had my own model railroad, and I, you know, I I could sit there. I learned how to do woodworking from my father. Um, you know, uh, I was a, you know, it was a very hands-on kind of thing. If you wanted, my idea of building fun wasn't going out and buying toys, it was building your own. And so, you know, in high school, I, I was like a lot of other high school kids, except that I was, I was in a college prep school, but I took drafting. So, you know, when I went away to college to do theatrical design, I already had the drafting background, something that most of the kids at the time didn't have. When I got to doing pinball machines, I had the drafting background. Um, and so, you know, I'm a big believer that things that you think might be a complete waste of time that you're learning right now uh, someday will will serve you well. <laughs> and it, it's, it's sort of turned out that way. Welcome, race fans, to Bonsai Okay, so now when you started the Bonsai Run thing at Williams, when you had your own desk, you're right across the hall from Larry. Were you at this point now an actual Williams employee? Yes. Okay, and was... That's an interesting uh, subject. The answer is I wasn't a real Williams employee. I was a... I was like all of the, quote, game designers. We were all... We were all employees with contracts, which made us very strange employees. <laughs> we were, let's, let's put it this way. We were employees with extended benefits. Was this a good thing or a bad thing? It was a good thing. Okay. It and was a spectacular thing. Why? Because you got better benefits than everybody? <laughs> um, well, you're, you basically negotiated the contracts. And so, yes, the, the benefits, the benefits were much bigger than most people that, you know, that, that had a, you know, that were a normal nine to five employee there. So now, how did Bonsai Run come from Wrecking Ball? Why did it change to this motorcycle theme? Became Bonsai Run. We were, we were really fishing around for a, um, for a theme, and um, I would I would be on my way to work every morning in my car, and I would I would you know I'd be trying to think what what can this game be? What can this game be? What can this game be? And then one day, the one of the guys who had seen the game, who was at the time um, 
head of the art department's name was Mark Springer. And uh, Mark came in to Larry, and he'd done a bunch of um, he'd done a bunch of roughs. And he said, "Hey, look, look, this game would be really cool if you turned it into a motorcycle game." And so Larry looked at it and went, "This looks pretty cool." And so they showed it to me, and I went, "You know, I you know I certainly can't come up with anything better at this point. Sounds good to me." And so it became Bonsai Run. What was wrong with uh, the original Wrecking Ball theme? Um, internally, nobody liked it. Nobody liked the construction theme. Um, they they all poo pooed it. And so, you know, the the way that the way that things got done at Williams was if you you know if you were a very very powerful game designer, which I wasn't, uh, you could convince anybody of anything. Uh, you know, Steve Ritchie could convince anybody that it, he was going to do the coolest thing in the world, and they just let him do it. Uh, but I wasn't that far yet, and so, um, you know, I, I wasn't in a position to convince anybody of anything. And, uh, you know, as a group, people were meeting going, what do you think of this, what do you think of this? And so basically when they came up with the Banzai Run thing, uh, they they said, great, go, do it. You know, and and that you know that that was sort of a subtle agreement that 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 was acceptable. Now, was how hard was it to make this transition from from video games to pinball? Did you find this 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 thing as a new pinball designer an easy transition? Uh, the answer the answer is it was it was an easy transition with more work than you can possibly imagine. Um. I had played so much pinball when I was in college, all the way through the 70s, all the way through the beginning of the 80s, that playing pinball wasn't a problem, okay? There was no problem with, and there was no problem with me sitting down and understanding how a machine was built. I picked all of that up in a really short amount of time. The hard part is is like any other discipline. You have to be willing to put in all the time it takes to start to understand the nuances of why something's good and why something's bad and why a shot is good and why a shot is bad and why is this clunky and why is it you know whatever. And it wasn't it wasn't just me doing this alone. I mean, Larry Demar was would come in. And he'd stand there and he'd go, you know, this thing over here just doesn't feel right. You need to do something to fix this. Okay. And Larry is very good at instilling in people that if you put in, you know, which, which I already, I already did, but, but, you know, if you put in the work and you, and you are talented, you will learn what it takes to do this thing. And so, you know, it, it was, because of the, my background in building things and in doing mechanical things and in you know all this other stuff and how much pinball I played, the actual function of you know actually how do, how do I go from point A to point B, the learning curve wasn't enormous, but the amount of work was tremendous. Because you know until you've done something once, you know you, you don't know what it is you don't know. Did you have any mentors at the time at Williams? I mean, was, you know, was there any guys that were taking you under your wing or was this all you were, you and Larry were doing this all kind of seat of your pants? That was it. The, the basic feeling, 
uh, and this isn't being unkind, the basic feeling internally at Williams about our project was that we were a joke. The, the basic feeling was that this thing that we had designed was going to be an albatross, and why did they waste money on building it? Hmm. And so, you know, the, the feeling was stay away from the toxic new guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's going to, you know, he'll be gone soon. Is, you know, talking to Gomez, he talked about at Williams the, the, um, the game designers were extremely competitive, that it was like a, a like almost a gang, a bunch of separate gangs that there was a certain amount of internal rift. Is that, did you get that feeling at this time too? No, I, I wasn't smart enough to, to understand that that's totally what was going on. <laughs> my, my, my feeling at the time was I had been given a once in a lifetime opportunity to show somebody that I could do something really cool. And I, I was going to be darn sure I didn't waste that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Well, you didn't waste it. Um, but on the other hand, when the game went to market that only sold 1,750 units, which was probably low even even at that, well, certainly at that time, how, how, did, how was the final project accepted by, you, as you saw it, you know, by the company and by the public? Uh, interestingly, um, but one of the one of the one of the reasons that Bonsai was brought internally was even back then, the industry was casting around for a way to increase the price of pinball, increase the price per play of their games uh, with the players. And when we tested Bonsai Run, we put it out on play at 50 cent play. At the time, all the games were a quarter. Uh, and in our test locations, we were able to show that the game would make somewhat more money at 50 cent play than it would make at a quarter. And the whole idea was the game cost more than a regular pinball machine, but it also earned, earned a little more. But it didn't earn enough more. And so when the game came out, the operators looked at it and said, wow, it looks like twice as much work for me. There's two, two play fields there. And, you know, it, it sure, you know, it sure is a, it sure is fun. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't, we don't, we're not quite sure what we ought to do with this. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, it, it was what it was, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that there's the, playing the game you know, 20 years later, uh, there, there's only a few things based on what I knew, you know, what I know now that I, you know, didn't know then that I would have changed about Bonds I Run, and they're very minor, you know, uh, uh, and uh, I think for what it, you know, for, for what we tried to do and what we tried to accomplish, I think it turned out okay. No, I think it turned out great, but, you know, since you brought it up, what were the things that you felt should be changed now that, you know, with this added knowledge you have of 20 years' experience? They're really, t- they're really minor things. They're things like, at the time, I wasn't smart enough because I, you know, we, we did Bonsai Run internally in basically in nine months. Um, and I was learning. I was, I was learning all these little nuances that you, you needed to know how to, you know, to whatever. And one of the nuances that you learn as a, as a pinball designer is, um, you, you make sure 
that the, the, the game is adjustable when it goes out on test so that uh, you can start to tweak the ball time, so that you can start to tweak game time and make people feel like they are getting their money's worth out of the game. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, you know, that's a fine line balancing act that you learn with, with time. I didn't know enough at that time to do things like make the outlane posts adjustable. Okay, the, the, the game, if you look at a bonsai run, the outlane posts aren't adjustable. And no one would ever do that now. Okay, no one would ever try and, you know, and, and do that kind of thing. Why didn't Larry mention that to you? Uh, but we didn't. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't know any better. Huh. And so the, the game had a, had a, had a pretty low, get, you know, ball time normally. Um, uh, which everybody was really thrilled about because it made a lot of money, you know, per minute. But, you know, I just, I just didn't, you know, at the time that was something I didn't, I didn't know any better. Um, and, you know, by the time I built Earthshaker, I figured it out. You know, I figured out that, you know, the first thing you do is you, you design much more defensively in how the timing of the game is set up. And so, you know, those are tricks that you start to learn as a pinball game designer as time goes on. Now, what, internally, you, you said that you, that the other people that were working there felt that you were kind of, you know, the toxic new guy. But now that the Bonsai Run project is finished, did that attitude towards you change? I mean, it must change to some degree because you got the Earthshaker project. Right. Um, well, the, the people who felt that way were, would have been, been the other people in engineering, but not the people, not the guy in charge. Luckily, um, Ken Fidesna, when I finished Bonsai Run, we sat down and we talked, and he said, "You did a fine job of, you know, of 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 taking a project that we had no idea whether you could really do, and you basically showed us you can build pinball machines, and we would love to have you stay." And so I thanked him very much, and we came to an agreement on a contract for a few years. And then I, I headed off, and, you know, for the first time I sort of went to work on my, you know, uh, uh, you know, regular, a, a normal pinball machine that I dreamed up the, 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 the tight, you know, the title and the, and the theme and all of that stuff. And, uh, I went to, you know, I went to work. Sunny drive time! And once again, I, I did something so crazy that they, they were all standing there shaking their head going, oh my god, what's he doing now? You're saying that Earthshaker was, in their eyes, another crazy design. Oh yeah, I mean, to, to make a, to, to actually go to the trouble of making a pinball machine shake, uh, you know, that, that was, you know, People in the halls would stand there and stare and go, you know, you're crazy. You, you can't do that. And I and I'd stand there and I'd look at them. I, I've learned this this great thing in all the time I've been in games, all the way in from video games, all the way until now, which is, and this is true, when when somebody is standing there saying you can't do that, it should be a little red flag that goes on in your brain that says, well, then I darn well should. Huh. <laughs> And so when, when somebody comes up with a crazy idea that sounds so outrageous that you just, you know, who would ever dream of such a thing, maybe you better try it. 
and I've learned that over and over and over, both in things I've done and that other people have done. And uh, you know, it, it just it, it's just true. If you're gonna if you're gonna catch the public's attention, you know, go you know go just you know go just shake them hard, show them something they've never seen before. And uh, and you know that that was both times I run and Earthshaker. Well, well, I know one guy that that certainly you caught that that caught the whisk of that whole thing, and it was somebody that wasn't even at Williams, and that was Joe Camico. Um, I mean, when he was at Data East, because man, he loved your shaker motor idea. He must have put it in every game in 1992 and 93 that Data East made. Right? Yeah. They sadly, out of all the things that we patented at at Williams, and we patented everything. <laughs> Just because it was a corporate policy, it was one of the things we should have done, and we never did. And it ended up getting picked up and 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 shoved into every Data East game that was made for you know for five years. Right. And in fact, it's you know still being done in some of their stuff. So you didn't. <laughs> it kind of seems goofy that you come up with this crazy idea and you didn't fill out the patent paperwork. Well, it it, it was up to the company at the time. I didn't have anything to do with it. And they just, you know, they just at the time didn't see it as something they needed to do. Now, on Earthshaker, the the building that that you know the, the Earthshaker Institute that goes up and down, um, what what brought that on as as a toy to to add to? I mean, and ultimately, it ended up not really being in anything other than the sample machines. I mean, how did you feel about that? Um. Okay, uh, we, I had gotten done with, you know, with doing the, you know, I was really into, I had seen, and I'll be perfectly frank with you, I had seen how Steve Ritchie had done high speed. And high speed, and I've said this publicly in talks that I've given to people, high speed is a watershed game in the history of pinball. And the reason that high speed is a watershed game in the history of pinball is because the game tells a story. Up until that time, there was no pinball machine that had ever been made that went to the trouble of taking you from point A to point B to point C, telling you a story as you went, and then at the end playing out that story in spectacular fashion. It was... It was a little bit like they, you know, he had taken a video game and brought it along into pinball. Um, and so, you know, in, in high speed, it's a simple story. Run the light and get away. The police, police will chase you, you know, but it told a story. That's a watershed game in the history of pinball. The game tells a story. And I also realized the theme was everything. Okay. It wasn't, that wasn't the case back then, but, but in my mind, theme was very, very important. Theme wasn't something you threw away. And remember, these were original themes we were doing. Right. And so, when I went to pick the themes for my games, I made sure that they were themes in, in, uh, in Earthshaker, and in Whirlwind, and in Funhouse, you know, they were all themes that everyday people in their everyday lives were familiar with. And you could twist the theme just enough that they'd look at it, they instantly knew what was going on, and they wanted to play with the game. 
So, I mean, Williams was not really doing licensing, but, I mean, other companies obviously did in the past, you know, starting with, you know, as early as the EM era with, with Wizard. What I mean, what was your your feeling about, you know, themes that were were based on, you know, a commercial entity and, you know, a, you know, a, you know, a licensed theme and, and, you know, because obviously you didn't use any of that until Adam's family. Was that just because Williams wasn't pushing that or because you just didn't feel that was the way to go? Uh, we internally at Williams at that time, William, the Williams designers were very proud people. They still are. And they were very proud of the fact that their games were original themes, that they had that they had concocted those games on their own and they had cooked them up and they hadn't licensed them and they they you know they brought them from nothing to being something. They had thought them up themselves and and there they were. They were we were we we every one of the game designers there was very proud of that fact. And what happened was uh, our friends at Data East were licensing everything. They, they were sitting there and they were starting to license the world. And we looked around and we said, you know, if maybe if, you know, maybe if we had taken, you know, maybe if we had taken Rudy and instead of, you know, in Funhouse and instead of it being Rudy, it had been Bart Simpson. You know, maybe we, instead of selling 11,000 of them, we would have sold 20,000 of them. And so, you know, the, the point wasn't lost. Now, there, there was a, a whole huge amount of, um, discussion internally. Should we license games? Shouldn't we license games? If we license games, what should, you know, what should be the boundaries of what we license? And, you know, these were things that, you know, weren't you know, to the credit of Williams Management, they weren't forced on the game designers by management. You know, there were discussions carried out, there were suggestions made, but nobody forced the game designers to do any theme that they didn't want to do. Uh, that was a big tenet there of being a game designer. You were in charge of your own theme, you were in charge of your own destiny, uh, you know, you had to get them to agree with what you were doing, you had to prove to them that what you were doing was a good idea. But they weren't going to stand in your way if you could make a case that what you were building was interesting and they could sell. Um, Adam's family happened because of a lunch I had with Ken Fidesna. And I was, I was basically uh, negotiating a new contract at that point. I had gone to lunch with Ken. Ken had said, hey, you know, the, the people there's the, there are these people in Hollywood who are doing an Adams Family movie, and um, it's just it's you know it, it it sounds like you know you ought to do a haunted house kind of thing or whatever, and would you be interested in Adams Family? Well, golly, Adams Family was one of my favorite TV shows when I was a kid. Okay, it's it's it fits my personality perfectly. The the whole family's warped, and so. You know, I said, wow, that's great. And I ran down to to Roger Sharp's office and I said, what's the deal with this Adams Family movie? And he said, well, there's, there, you know, it's already been dumped by one studio. <laughs> it's being picked up by another studio. But I'll make a couple of calls and see what's happening. 
And so we worked through it, and I ended up licensing Adam's family. If the uh, if the movie was going to be good, bad, or indifferent, we just you know I was doing it because I loved the TV show. Yeah, because really the one of the you know kind of first licenses was kind of Elvira and the Party Monsters, and that really was kind of a combination of an original theme and a license combined almost. Right. We we call we we call those. Um, sort of, sort of light licenses, where you can, you know, you have a lot of leeway to do in the game what you want to do, um, and you know, to to do a pinball machine, you they're a they're a, a lighter license is your friend. It gives you tons of leeway to do what you want to do, and you're not so beholding to the license holder. Okay. Well, before we get into Adam's family. I, you know, with uh, with Earthshaker, I don't know how many units were ultimately sold, but that seemed to be a pretty popular game. Was your was your um, designer power at Williams starting to you know snowball a little bit? Earthshaker is uh, was an interesting thing. Earthshaker came out. Earthshaker was on the street and was making a ton of cash. And internally, there were the usual, uh, the usual political things going on. Um, basically, Earthshaker got shown, got, got the bums rush, uh, because of the next game that was coming. Uh, and, um, uh, in, uh, a year later, something happened that that was sort of the defining moment of me being there. They had sold something like 3,000 Earthshakers. I don't even remember. It was in that area. But at that time, we weren't selling that many games. Uh, 3,000 wasn't a bad run. It wasn't a great run. Um, and uh, our, our, uh, our German customer... Uh, at the time had sort of given Earthshaker somewhat short shrift. And so I was pretty, I was pretty bummed out because here I had a game that was making a lot of money on the street. I was getting calls from people I didn't even know who were distributors thanking me for building it. Um, and, um, and it sort of got bumped off the assembly line. And a year later, our German distributor walked up to me at a trade show. And this was a man who had been in the business forever. He wielded unbelievable amounts of money and power. And he walked up to me and he said, Pat. And I said, I said, yes. And he said, he said, I'm sorry. And I said, for what? And he said, I did not know what the game was you had built. And I am truly sorry we did not build another three or four thousand of them. And that, that, that was amazing. You know, that's an amazing thing to have happen. Hmm. Uh, but it, it sort of, it sort of set, set the stage for the games after that because once, you know, once they realized they had screwed up on the first one, the next ones got to be easier and easier. So you were gaining a little momentum then. Right. Now, but you got some things 
in Earthshaker that were kind of unusual for the time. You got a real back glass. Well, maybe that wasn't that unusual, but it was a mirrored back glass, so it was somewhat of an expensive thing. My belief at the time, and somewhat still is, is that there are some elements of pinball that are sort of defining, and I wanted a mirrored back glass. And, and, you know, and so off we went to find somebody who could do a mirrored back glass. <laughs> yeah, probably not. It's an expensive process and uh, probably, you know, cost you some money in the design, right? Right. And, and the Earthshaker Institute, which ultimately got dropped, now, what was, was there any story behind that? Mm-hmm. Just that, you know, they, at the time, when, you know, again, uh, it was, um, they weren't, sh- you know, they, they were building the game. They weren't sure if, you know, how many they were going to sell. They were nervous that it had the shaker motor in it. You know, all of the operators going to look at it and decide that it's a horrible idea. We shouldn't be doing this. I mean, they, you know, they, they saw this as being way out on the edge. You know, this was to the, to the management there. This was, this was bleeding edge, you know, taking a chance of putting this strange stuff in a game. And, you know, the, the building that went up and down, well, that building doesn't do anything with the ball. And so why do we have it in the game? Well, it's part of the, you know, it's part of the ambiance. It's what makes the game fun to watch and do its thing. Oh, well, we can't afford stuff like that. So they allowed it to stay in for the first uh, 250 games or 300 games. And uh, then they, they took it out. And we... You know, they they were nice. They got me to agree that there could be like a kit if you wanted to do it, you know, on your own. You could add it to the game, although they never really sold any kits, so. Uh-oh, looks like rain. You move on to Whirlwind, which sold considerably more, 7,300. And now you've got... By the way, that was a big number for the year that it, it sold that number. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. And you... 90. Yeah, 1990, yeah. And you've got you, you, you've got the next kind of goofy toy is the fan that I've never seen in a pinball machine. I'm sure nobody else had either. Right. So yeah. what was... The ambiance thing. Yeah, the ambiance thing. But was how was that received by Williams? Well, I hit... You know, we... we <laughs> I can tell you the story, which is really funny. Um, I, we were sitting there, and once again, we were, you know, we were sort of racing to get the game out on test and stuff. And I was there late one night, and Bill Futsenreiter was the programmer for the game, and uh, he had the, you know, he had the the, world, the the wheels turning, and they were shooting the ball off in all different directions, and we were just having a good old time, just howling and laughing. Um, you have to understand that once again people had internally told us that doing spinning wheels on a game was a bad idea we shouldn't do that because there's always a problem of getting the wheel level in the play field and the operators hate it because you know when we build them we never we don't have a good way of getting them level what happens when the when the wood is thinner or thicker and you know the on and on and on well the the mechanical engineer that worked with me, John Crutch, I went to him and I said, here's the big concern. The big concern is that this spinning wheel, it, you know, that had been in, you know, a bunch of ballet games and things, they could never get it right at, you know, they were always putting shims and stuff under it on an assembly line. 
And he said, no problem, we can adjust it underneath the play field. And he came up with the whole system that's now used, you know, by by uh, by our friends at Stern. He came up with the whole system where you can adjust the height of the wheel by turning it underneath like a screw. Hmm. And I was the one who said, let's take the three wheels and let's make them big gears underneath so they're all geared to each other. So there's only one motor. And then we, you know, we, we molded them out of plastic. They were individually adjustable to the play field. Um, you know, the, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that, you know, you, you say, oh, the game was a hit. Well, the game wouldn't have been a hit if we hadn't have done all those kinds of things. Uh, you know, that, that there was a lot going on there that was really sort of pushing the edge of where we were going with those kind of things. Anyway, I was working late one night. We were playing the game. The wheels were spinning. And I, I, I think I said to Bill Futzenreiter, wouldn't it be hilarious if this thing were, you know, there were, somebody, somebody said, I don't know who it was, wouldn't it be cool if there were a fan blowing in your face? Maybe Bill said that. I don't even remember at this point. And I said, well, if I go get a fan, can, is there some way we can hook it up and just see what happens? And somehow we arranged for the game to turn the fan on. We just had this stupid desk fan sitting there, and you'd turn on the wheels in the game, and then the desk fan would come on. And we just rolled on the floor. We were just laughing so hard. And so the net, we, we were literally three and a half weeks from production, full production. And the next morning, I got in bright and early. I walked into my friend John Crutcher's cubicle, and I said, I don't care what it takes. I don't care how much money it costs. You've got to find a way to get a motor and a fan on top of this game so that when the, when the tornado happens, the wind is blowing in your face. And everyone went to work like deranged maniacs for the next two weeks calling vendors, calling motor people, calling fan people, and basically made it happen. And, you know, again, that's not just a testament to the engineering group, it's a testament to Williams themselves that they were willing to to just, you know, to bend over backwards to make something like that happen. Yeah, because it must have been, you had to have a custom molded housing and a motor with fan hardware. That must have cost some money. And a board to control it. Right. And, 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 we, did it, and we did it all in three weeks. And... You did it as a new kind of. This is only your, you know, basically your third game. So you you're not wheeling a big bat there yet. Eh, I was doing better. <laughs> <laughs> the software guys, like for for Earthshaker, you didn't have Pat. You had Mark what Benicio, and and on um, and on Whirlwind, you you didn't have you didn't have Larry either. Why didn't you get Larry on your games? Larry was off, you know, doing other things. He. Uh, he had he had negotiated with Williams to do a new operating system, uh, and he was in the process of starting to work on the new operating system, which he was very happy to do. Um, and so I was off working with other people. One thing I, that I always was found interesting, I, I um, back in the um, in the late '90s, we were bringing container games back from Europe, and I got a whirlwind that. The, the three spinning wheels on the playfield weren't motorized, but instead had a 
solenoid with a plunger that would pull in with enough momentum that it would spin the wheels. Now, obviously not as well as a motor, but it was using a plunger and solenoid assembly. Why why that approach on, on some games? I do know that that there were some German laws about um, the motors had to be approved by their approval agency. That there was some big deal about about motors, and it's entirely possible that um, that that the motor didn't meet their specs, and and they decided to do something wacky. I, I honestly don't remember that, hmm. but but that would be my response if you know, like you just told me that that would be my response. I, I know that there were some of those problems that we had in export. This completes part one of our extended interview with Pat Lawler, the pinball game designer for Williams, Bally, and Stern. Please join us for our upcoming TopCast episode, where we will continue this interview. TopCast is a podcast covering pinball and the coin-operated amusement industry. It's available free of charge on iTunes and additionally available for download at pinrepair.com slash TopCast. TopCast is produced by Clay Harrell. Production assistance by The Corn and Al Warner. This is Lawrence Brown reminding you that TopCast is copyrighted 2010 by pinrepair.com.